Welcome to the podcast of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke Divinity School. We offer concise and constructive content on ministry and theology to support the ongoing formation of faithful and imaginative leaders. Welcome to this inaugural podcast of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke. Uh, For those who may not have heard of us, the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies uh, is a full Anglican seminary program within Duke Divinity School that trains students for ordained and lay ministries in the church and the world. We see this podcast as a way to share some of our content and resources in hopes of being a blessing to the wider church. I'm Joe Carnes-Ananias. I'm the Associate Director of the House, and we're so glad that you've joined us today. Our plan for this podcast is to bring you talks, uh, interviews, and sermons, uh, things that will be of interest to folks who are interested in theology and the practice of ministry. Uh, This podcast will mostly feature Anglicans and Episcopalians, but we hope that our content will often have a broader appeal. Today, we bring you a talk from our director, Christopher Beely, which was originally given as a webinar for the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. His topic today is praying in a time of pandemic. And though we had planned to start this podcast before the pandemic, it seems appropriate to begin our podcast with a talk that's so timely. You know, there's a sense in which this time of quarantine, a time of great change for most, isolation, sorrow for many, there's a sense in which this time of quarantine is an opportunity for us to return to the core of our faith. In Christopher's talk today, he draws on scripture and the saints of the tradition to refresh us in the beautiful simplicity of the life of prayer, in which God is ever calling us to communion with himself. I hope you find it a blessing. So uh, I thought I would share with you for a few minutes some thoughts uh, about prayer. And the idea was that this might be uh, a timely topic, especially now, uh, during a time when we're quarantined, we're we're more isolated than we normally are. So the intent here uh, is uh, just to offer and share a few bits uh, from the scriptures and the great tradition on how we might be able to grow Uh, as believers, as disciples, as people, through focusing on our life of prayer um, during this time. So this is um, prayer for all of us during a time of pandemic. Um, So here's the plan of what I thought I would talk with you about first, uh, is to just offer some definitions and images of prayer uh, that we have um, from the great tradition. And then in three main parts, uh, I want to talk first about uh, what's the basic method of Christian prayer that the saints have left for us. Um, Secondly, what's the basic pattern uh, of true prayer? And then thirdly, we'll look at the model of prayer, which, of course, is the prayer that our Lord taught us. Uh, And then finally, I'll pull all that together in... um, a set of thoughts about how can we become people of uh, what St. Paul admonished us to be, people of unceasing prayer. How can we pray at all times? 
So that's what I want to share with you um, this evening. And again, it's great to be with you. So what is prayer then? How can we talk about prayer? This evening, we're going to be thinking about prayer not as simply, you know, the words that I say when I'm in a time of prayer or on my knees figuratively uh, or literally. Rather, let's start by thinking about prayer much more expansively. So what the saints tell us throughout the centuries, echoing the scriptures, is that prayer is really the very heart um, of the Christian life. And in a way, it's kind of the summary of all everything that we do uh, is somehow supposed to be a prayer or part of our prayer or resulting um, from our prayer. It's the very heart of the Christian life. Prayer puts us in direct contact with God. Prayer, in other words, enables us to be what we were made for. We were made for relationship with God. We were made to, to be, not just to have ideas about God, not just have great intentions about how we might live our lives in a way that um, God inspires us through that would please God, but that we would have direct contact with God. And that's probably the greatest gift of the Christian life um, that we have. Here are a few um, images of Christian prayer that come to us from uh, perhaps the first great synthesizer of Christian spirituality in the early church uh, in the fourth century was Evagrius of Pontus. He was a great spiritual teacher. He traveled around uh, the wilderness towns and the desert um, and met with the desert fathers and mothers and kind of brought their teaching together uh, in a number of his writings. Listen to some images from Evagrius um, about prayer. Prayer is the fair flower of meekness and mildness. It's the fruit of joy and thanksgiving. Prayer is an ascent of the spirit directly to God. One of Evagrius' most famous sayings, which I love to share with our uh, divinity students, it's important for every seminarian to hear, um, that if you are a theologian, you truly pray, Evagrius says, and if you truly pray, you are a theologian. One of the other marks of Christian prayer is that it's also Trinitarian. Through prayer, we come into contact with God the Father through the mediation of Jesus, his Son, by the power and the inspiration um, of the Holy Spirit. Prayer, then, is a way of describing and containing our whole relationship with God. And I want to share with you a comparison. Think about how we relate to each other as human beings. See, we're bodily creatures. We're, we have an embodied life. Um, so much of our lives is determined uh, in and through and by our bodies. So think about how we relate to each other. We, best of all, we have physical proximity to each other, which is something that we're missing so much today, isn't it? Uh, but there's no, there's no substitute for being with someone, you know, sitting down with a friend and being able to read their body language, right? And even their smell and so on. Think about the role of touch in human relationships. What an awful life it would be if we never felt human touch. That would be a terrible existence. But what we're doing right now through the waves of the internet is I'm talking. Well, speech also involves a body, my, the body of my vocal cords and 
lungs and so on, but the body of the air. Our words are embodied, they travel through time and space, through waves, sonic, sonic waves through the air, into the ear of another person. Our entire existence as human beings is mediated through our bodies. Now, if that's the case about us, let's ask ourselves, how are we to relate to God? Does God have a body? Well, God can have a body, and God does have a body as Jesus. God can take on bodily form, as God did many times. We read throughout the scriptures, these great appearances. But God in himself doesn't have a body like we do. So how are we going to relate to God who transcends all of the universe, all of time and space? God is beyond and greater than all of the dimensions of our existence, even though he fills those dimensions at the same time. The way we relate to God without a body is called prayer. Prayer is the intercourse that we have in our spirit with God, who is our creator and our redeemer and our sustainer. And through a life of prayer, we come into an even more intimate connection with God than we can have with one another through our bodies. Now, that can take a lifetime to learn, a lifetime of discipleship. It's not immediately obvious, and none of us feel it all the time. But that's a gift that we've been given by grace through the Holy Spirit. God has given himself to us in Jesus and with the inspiration of the Spirit to come into connection. So the whole topic about prayer is about connection. And what better kind of thing to be thinking about when we're isolated? Perhaps many of us are lonely. A lot of us, I'm sure, are lonely right now, missing that human contact. Well, we know that the coronavirus uh, is not in itself a blessing. It's a tragedy. It's, it's a sign of a broken world. Uh, and it's, it's the result of all kinds of brokenness, including our own sin. But we also know and trust that God will use all circumstances, if we let him, to bring good uh, and to help us grow. So during this time, perhaps we might grow in our connection with God, particularly through cultivating a deeper life of prayer. The final thing to say about prayer in general is that it presumes and involves two other things, but you'll find these throughout the scriptures and the saints when you read them. The first is, I've already been assuming it, the knowledge of God. St. Augustine says at the beginning of his confessions that we, we can't pray or pray to or praise someone that we don't know. And if we don't know who God is and what God is like, well, we might be praying to the wrong thing. So if prayer is connection with the Lord of life, well, we have to know the Lord of life. And we've come to know that through the preached gospel, the teaching of the scriptures and the church. So all of that is assumed. Prayer involves knowledge. It's part of a relationship. And it's a relationship that has to begin, that we have to enter. It's not just something that uh, we roll over and find ourselves in uh, without any means or transmission. The second thing that prayer presumes is spiritual and moral growth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The closer that we grow to God in that connection, the more and more we're turning our lives away from sin 
and towards God's life in Christ. And it works the other way around. It's not a one-way street. If we want to grow in prayer, we also need to grow uh, in holiness and vice versa. If we, want to need to, if we want to grow in holiness, we need a lot of prayer. So those two things are being assumed. So I want to talk with you for a minute first then about uh, what I'm calling the basic method for a time of prayer that we have from the scriptures and the tradition. Uh, it's what we've called, many of you heard, have heard this term before, Lectio Divina, or divine reading, literally. Let's just think for a minute and refresh our memory about uh, this basic method of prayer. I have a quote here from a contemporary monk and scholar of monastic spirituality, uh, Brother Columbus Stewart, um, and in his book on Cassie and the Monk, uh, Columbus Stewart writes this in the monastic practices of prayer, that all prayer arose within a continual encounter with the biblical word. Whether uh, alone or in community, all monastic prayer, Stewart tells us, was rooted in meditatio. The Bible both established the ground of possibility for unceasing prayer, and it provided its method. Anyone who reads the great uh, writings of the early church or the medieval church or the Reformation, early modern church will, will see this. Our prayer as Christians is rooted uh, above all in the reading of scripture. That's what Lectio Divina is. It's a, it's the, it, this is the most common, ancient, and um, fruitful method of prayer that we have uh, throughout Christian history and around the world. And it's very simple. The best things in life are simple, right? Uh, and it has these four steps, Lectio, Meditatio, Oratio, and Contemplatio. Lectio simply means the reading or hearing of Scripture. We read a passage or we listen to it, and that's where our prayer starts. Meditatio, then, means thinking with the passage, asking questions that occur to us, noticing what stands out. Uh, meditatio, in the monastic sense, is like, it's like ruminating or a cow chewing the cud. Uh, it's not the same thing uh, that we often mean uh, in English today when we talk about meditation, uh, silent meditation or transcendental meditation. This is a different sense of the word meditation. It's an active use of the mind. Notice that the mind is involved uh, in prayer. We're not merely passive instruments. The reading of scripture itself uh, requires a whole lot of understanding, uh, knowledge, and arts, as St. Augustine tells us. So after reading or hearing the scripture, we think about it, we reflect on it, we ask questions. Thirdly, then, we pray in response, however we're led. And our prayer and response can take many forms. It can take the form of uh, astonishment. It can take the form of praise. It can take the form of confession or sorrow or penitence. It can lead us to tears. It can move us to pray for a neighbor or a loved one uh, who has just come onto our heart. And this is how God works in our spirit, bringing these things to our heart, particularly through the hearing or reading uh, of scripture. So oratio is prayer itself. We pray in response. And then finally, contemplatio or contemplation is simply to rest in God's presence and to allow, allow God to continue to work in our hearts, in our minds, at a deeper level that's beyond our conscious understanding. So that's Lectio Divina. 
it's really the most simple, the most common, and the most ancient form uh, of Christian prayer. Let me share with you then um, what I'm going to call uh, the basic pattern of Christian prayer, what in that third step of oratio, uh, what might be unpacked there. So here's the basic pattern of Christian prayer. This comes to us from uh, the first uh, work uh, solely on prayer in the Christian tradition written by Origen of Alexandria in the late second, early third century. Um, Origen's work on prayer is probably the most influential book on prayer uh, ever written for Christians outside the Bible. It was um, studied, copied, uh, and imitated by many other um, later writers. So what Origen did is Origen just called through the scriptures, and he studied all the great prayers in scripture, uh, the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel, the prayers of Moses, uh, the prayers of Paul, the prayer of Jesus um, above all. And this is what he distilled. So here's a model, a basic pattern of our prayer itself. Origen tells us that, that the ideal prayer um, should begin with praise. Notice where we begin. We're not thinking yet even about ourselves. We have to start by thinking about God and who God is. We begin with praise of God, which always for us happens through Christ by the Spirit's power. So an opening word of praise, just naming who God is and something true about God is a wonderful way to begin a prayer. Secondly, then thanksgiving for all that God's done for us. You'll remember in the Eucharistic prayers, we do this every Sunday, we remember in the anamnesis, the unforgetting, we remember all of God's works through the history of Israel and the church. That's an act of thanksgiving. Eucharist itself is thanksgiving. It's what the word means. But in our own private prayers, uh, we want to thank God for God's gift to all creation and all of God's people, and then also for whatever we're grateful for in our own lives. Thirdly, this may be the most interesting to some of us. Origen recommends only thirdly, not first, but third, that we think about the ways that we're separated from God, which we call our sin. And notice the, uh, the recommendation here. It's very subtle and wise. The first thing to do is simply to recall our sin. The reason there is because our sin is not something that we're always aware of or even remember after we have uh, separated ourselves, strayed in some way uh, from our life with God. So the first act here, and we can even ask God like the psalmist does, Lord, show me my sin. Show me in those secret places of my heart where I've strayed from you. So recollection of sin, and then, this is so interesting, a prayer for healing of our habits that lead to sin. Before we even ask for forgiveness, we ask for God's grace to change. Notice how that shows a kind of maturity of intent. It's, this isn't a, a quick and easy, oh, sorry, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Get over it. I said I'm sorry. Let's move on. Rather, we want to examine ourselves and really think, okay, how exactly do I keep, especially the patterns, how do I keep stumbling and falling or turning away from God? Lord, heal that part of my life. Uh, restore me and so on. And then thirdly, 
to ask for forgiveness. A lot of wisdom in that third step. Fourth, then, is our, our prayer again, our petition for particular things. And Origen recommends that we pray first for the great and the heavenly things. We pray for God's kingdom to come throughout the world and in society. We pray for God to make us uh, his uh, true sons and daughters, to help us live out the calling uh, that we've accepted and that we've set ourselves to. And then, secondly, to pray for the more mundane things that we also need and that God really cares about, those in our household, our loved ones, and ourselves, too. And then finally, to end with praise again, which we could call doxology. Now, for those of you um, who are uh, Christians in liturgical traditions, you might recognize that this pattern of prayer is what we have in the collects of the prayer book. Each of these prayers begins with a statement of praise to God, often a thanksgiving, and then recollection of sin uh, isn't necessarily always there, but only then does the prayer come. So this is a basic pattern uh, of Christian prayer that you can do very, very quickly uh, and briefly even, in a couple of minutes at the beginning of the day. This is medicine for the soul, and it does wonders uh, for our lives. Okay, thirdly then, uh, I want to offer a few comments for you on uh, the model prayer, the, the greatest prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us, as we say, uh, together in church each time we gather. One of the most common things about prayer in the early church, the first is that it's always rooted in the Bible. Uh, the second is the centrality of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, early Christians often uh, said the Lord's Prayer two or three times a day, made a point in the morning, in the evening, and ideally in the middle of the day, just to pause and pray the Lord's Prayer. Most Christian writing on prayer takes the form of commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And that makes sense when we think about it, why that would be um, the case. So in just a few final minutes here, I want to offer um, a few comments from the tradition uh, on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, this might be new for many of us, and most uh, New Testament scholars um, look at the, the text in Matthew and Luke this way. The Lord's Prayer was not given to us simply as a prayer to be said quickly in one sitting, you know, in 35 seconds or however long it takes. Of course, we should do that, and we do that in the liturgy. Rather, the Lord's Prayer is meant to be a model for all of our prayer, and each of these petitions can be unpacked endlessly. So one of the great spiritual disciplines that we can undertake is simply to pray the Lord's Prayer slowly, to pray it line by line and let it sink in, or pray it at whatever pace uh, you feel led by the Spirit. Some days you want to pray it uh, more quickly, other days you pray it. Uh, more slowly. So with that in mind, uh, let's think about the Lord's Prayer um, together. Uh, just a few points. We're not going to exhaust it um, this evening. So the first petition, our Father who art in heaven, it's a prayer, as is often noted, to God with a real kind of intimacy. This is the prayer of Jesus, the prayer that Jesus taught us. And from the very first line, we know that we're coming to God through Jesus. In calling, notice that Jesus doesn't call, even throughout his ministry, Jesus doesn't call God 
Lord or Creator uh, or God, with very rare exception. Jesus calls God Father. And that was a novel move, uh, not unprecedented, but the way that Jesus does it was pretty novel. So we call God Father in a kind of radical act, claiming that relationship that we have to God in Christ, and it's a relationship of intimacy. Uh, Abba, Father, who art in heaven. From the first line of the prayer, we know that this is a, a believing prayer or a believer's prayer. The moment we start, we're uttering um, our faith uh, in Christ and also um, through the Spirit. I want you to notice how the prayer begins in that whole uh, first paragraph, let's call it that, the first sentence uh, in the English rendering here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we just heard from Origen's recommendation and on prayer, the way Jesus taught us to pray is to think, first of all, about God and God's ways, God's will, and this word kingdom. In English, kingdom is a noun, uh, but in Greek, basileia kind of more obviously um, suggests the activity, the dynamic of, of actually ruling and exercising authority and sovereignty. So when we pray, Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, O Lord. We're asking God actively to enter into the affairs of the world, to enter into our own lives, and to come in God's power, the power of the kingdom of God, which Jesus came teaching, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel. Notice also that the kingdom in Jesus' teaching was accompanied by amazing demonstrations of healing and exorcism, and reconciliation, and teaching, and encouragement, and admonition. So this is a real sort of godly power word. Our prayer begins then by acknowledging that we're not in control. God is in control, and we need even more of God's control in the world where things aren't going too well. So we pray first um, for God's rule uh, and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Secondly, I want to turn then um, to the petitions. Give us today our daily bread is a prayer for the most fundamental things that we need. So after we've acknowledged God, prayed for God uh, to rule and for God's will to be done, we turn to our own needs. Notice that Jesus teaches us to pray for the most fundamental and basic things that we need. Now, bread, bread here also acts as a symbol. Uh, bread is a symbol for all sustenance that we need. We could think food, water, shelter, especially clean water, shelter, warmth, companionship. These are all of the things that feed our bodies. And God wants to feed us. God is a good motherly father who wouldn't uh, give his children a scorpion, you know, if they asked for an egg or a loaf of bread. When we come to God like this, notice, I mean, we're not asking for anything fancy. We're not asking for anything elaborate. We're asking for the most simple, basic things. So prayer, as Jesus teaches us, is a school for simplicity. Prayer teaches us to return to our most basic nature and our most basic needs 
over and over again every day, maybe even several times a day. None of us ever becomes too fancy or too great to imagine that we don't need God's provision for even the most very basic things. But there's a second sense of bread, isn't there? Uh, the more you read uh, in the New Testament, Jesus also tells us that, uh, echoing the Old Testament, that uh, men and women will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In John's gospel, Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life. Notice we, when we pray for God to feed us, to give us bread, we're praying for basic material sustenance, companionship, shelter, but we're also praying daily for God to feed us with his word. That's a powerful prayer indeed. And notice the point here, the assumption, is that we need both of these things. The Lord's Prayer reminds us of our need and our constant uh, dependency on God. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I want to make a couple of comments here, and here I'm, uh, I'm echoing uh, John Cassian, uh, the great uh, Western monastics, kind of the Evagrius of the West. Uh, when St. Benedict wrote The Rule of Benedict, he assumed that all of his monks would be reading John Cassian. John Cassian is the spiritual manual for all Benedictine monasticism. So I, I want to draw a little bit on Cassian and again on Origen. Uh, on this verse of the prayer. So a prayer for forgiveness, it's, it's the most straightforward um, and, and, and kind of obvious prayer, isn't it? We need to pray uh, for forgiveness, um, but there's a catch. We have to be forgiving others at the same time. Now you'll notice in Matthew's gospel that this is the only petition in the Lord's prayer that Jesus then goes on to comment on right after he teaches the prayer. And several other times later in Matthew's gospel, we have some, what are, what are even some hard sayings of Jesus, uh, the wicked servant and what it will mean for us if we expect to be forgiven, but we can't forgive others. So we know that Jesus takes this very, very seriously. Um, I want to share with you um, a thought from John Cassian on this, which kind of stabs me in the heart, perhaps it will, um, to Cassian writes this, forgive as we forgive others. Note how mild we tend to be about even great sins that are committed against God, but what harsh and inexorable exactors we are when it comes to the debts that other people owe us. We're light when it comes to offending God, but we're very, very harsh when it comes to other people offending us. The work of letting go of those things can take a lifetime. It certainly takes grace and the Holy Spirit. This is an impossible job by human standards, but it's not at all impossible through the grace of Jesus who died in order to give us forgiveness. So that's a stern warning and a great admonition. We have forgiveness through Christ as we are also forgiving others, and we're all, we're all learning how to do that uh, more and more. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer is probably the most unmodern part of the Lord's Prayer. It reminds us that we are not in charge. We are not the masters of the universe. Uh, there are other forces in our lives. There are human, earthly, and even cosmic forces that play a role 
for those uh, who live in, in, in comfortable, uh, uh, comfortable social conditions, don't tend to think about these sorts of things too much. But those who are severely oppressed will have a great sense for what it means to live under the, under the power of others that we didn't ask for. So God comes to deliver us from these powers as well. Uh, and we pray this daily, uh, not to be led into temptation, but to be delivered out of it, even when God tests us, that God would save us from the time of trial uh, and deliver us from, from the evil one or from evil. Those are just a few thoughts um, on the Lord's Prayer. I want to close um, with a final thought uh, about where does all this lead? So St. Paul uh, tells us in 1 Thessalonians uh, to pray always. This is, as I said at the beginning, prayer um, is, it's really all of our life. Everything in our life ought to be a part of our prayer, a part of our relationship with God and our communion with God. So if we ask the question, well, how do we pray always? Jesus gives us the answer. Here's how you pray always. You pray the way that I'm teaching you. And over time, the more we do this, the prayer will grow in our heart. Look at what God has given us uh, in these, these teachings, these models of prayer, and especially the prayer that Jesus taught us. The result then is what the monks called contemplation. So there's a great promise for all of us during this time of quarantine. I'm trying to practice it myself um, uh, while I'm spending most of the day at home. Find a few minutes, close the door literally or figuratively as Jesus says. Pray the prayer that Jesus taught. Grab your Bible, practice some Lectio Divina. Ask God to, to bless your prayer life. I promise you he'll answer that prayer if you love it. Thank you so much for joining us today, friends. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow us on social media at AEHS at Duke. And I hope you'll join us next time as Christopher interviews Luke Bretherton on his recent book, Christ and the Common Life.